welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents and whoever who, mm, you know what? I lost my train of thought. <laughs> you want to beat Love other cool teams trivia. at pub quiz. <laughs> yeah. You, you like a trivia and you want to beat teams at trivia. Listen to this podcast. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <laughs> See what happens when you like. Yeah, when, when you when your brain goes a different for place. A year and a half. Oh God, we've been doing this for like almost three years now. I know. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's so good that we're both organized people, or else this would not have happened for as long as it. Has. No. Basically, doing a book report every week for <laughs> three years. <laughs> Who knew that we loved book reports so much that we decided to make it like a, a side hobby. <laughs> Um, so speaking of book reports, actually, mine is uh, a pretty today. My topic is um, as book reporty as it's going to get for the most part this weekend. Next and my next topic the week after next, I think is going to be very, very like middle school. This is my this is my report on so and so. <laughs> but um, uh, today I decided to do a little a little something different for old LT. Uh, I've, I'm expanding my 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 mind and mm-hmm. my different areas and like going back in time to where where I was like where I was in high school and what my inter- where my interests lied. So today my topic is going to be on Sondheim. Here's to the ladies who lunch. Everybody laugh. So <laughs> a caveat. <laughs> about Sondheim. Your girl Lauren is a recovering uh, musical theater nerd. I cannot sing, which I think where a lot of my resentment lies about musical theater. So I used to be super into musical theater and then I was not. Mm -hmm. And I am to this day like very uncomfortable with musicals. So I am not super familiar with Sondheim, like the, the nitty gritty about it. So I will not be... Um you know, giving you like personal stories about things. But I will say Sondheim has been involved with both one of my favorite musicals and my most hated musical, the musical I hate more than anything in the whole wide world. So excellent. Let's just get into it, shall we? Mm, Please. Stephen Joshua Sondheim was born March 22nd, 1930. He is still alive. He is 90 this year. Whoa. Uh, Yep. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, he was born into a Jewish family in New York City, the son of Etta Janet and Herbert Sondheim. His father manufactured dresses designed by his mother. And the composer grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and after his parents divorced on a farm near Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, so he was an only child of well-to-do parents and he lived in the San Remo on Central Park West and was described in Meryl Seacrest's biography, which is called Stephen Sondheim, A Life. He was an isolated, emotionally neglected child. Um, uh, perfect for, <laughs> perfect for, for musical theater. Yep. Um, he traces his interest in theater to Very Warm for May, which was a Broadway musical he saw when he was nine. Quote, the curtain went up and revealed a piano, Sondheim recalled. A butler took a duster and brushed it up, tinkling the keys. I thought that was thrilling. Uh, he attended the New York Military Academy and George School, which was a private Quaker preparatory school in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. When Sondheim was 10 years old, his father, already a distant figure, had left his mother for another woman. Uh, Herbert sought custody of Stephen, but was unsuccessful. 
Sondheim explained to biographer Seacrest that he was, quote, what they called an institutionalized child, meaning one who had no contact with any kind of family. Mm. You're in, though it's luxurious, you're in an environment that supplies you with everything but human contact. No brothers and sisters, no parents, and yet plenty to eat and friends to play with in a warm bed, you know? Mm. Sondheim also detested his mother, who was said to be psychologically abusive and projected her anger from her failed marriage onto her son. He said, when my father left her, she substituted me for him, and she used me the way she used him to come on to and berate, beat up on, you see. What she did for five years was treat me like dirt, but come on to me at the same time. She once wrote him a letter. I know. Uh, she once wrote him a letter saying that the, quote, only regret she ever had was giving him birth. Oh, come on. I know. Like, geez. That's Keep it to horrible. yourself. I know. Keep that to yourself, moms. When his mother died in the spring of 1992, Sondheim did not attend her funeral. He had already been estranged from her for nearly 20 years. Wow. So let's get to the good stuff. When Sondheim was about 10 years old, around the time of his parents' divorce, he became friends with James Hammerstein, who was the son of lyricist and playwright Oscar Hammerstein II. Uh, The elder Hammerstein became Sondheim's surrogate father, influencing him profoundly and developing his love of musical theater. Uh, Sondheim meant Hal Prince, who would direct many of his shows at the opening of South Pacific, Hammerstein's musical with Richard Rogers. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see in Sondheim's work the influence of Hammerstein, for sure. The comic musical he wrote at George School, which was called By George, was a success among his peers and buoyed the young songwriter's self-esteem. When Sondheim asked Hammerstein to evaluate it as though he had no knowledge of its author, he said it was the worst thing he had ever seen. <laughs> Uh, But if you want to know why it's terrible, said Hammerstein, I'll tell you. They spent the rest of the day going over the musical, and Sondheim later said, In that afternoon, I learned more about songwriting and the musical theater than most people learn in a lifetime. (laughs) Um, Hammerstein designed a course of sorts for Sondheim on constructing a musical. He had the young composer write four musicals, each with one of the following conditions. One, based on a play he admired. And Sondheim chose George S. Kaufman and Mark Connolly's Beggar on Horseback, which became All That Glitters. That was the name of the Mm -hmm. musical. Two, based on a play he liked but thought flawed. And Sondheim chose Maxwell Anderson's High Tour. Uh, Three, based on an existing novel or short story not previously dramatized, which became his unfinished version of Mary Poppins, which was called Bad Tuesday. Um, which was unrelated to the musical film and stage play scored by the Sherman Brothers. And fourth, an original, which became his musical Climb High. Um, Unfortunately, none of the assignment musicals were produced professionally. High Tour and Mary Poppins have never been produced. Uh, The rights holder for the original High Tour refused permission, and Mary Poppins was unfinished to begin with. Hmm. So um, after he graduated, he began attending Williams College, which was a liberal arts college in Williamstown, Massachusetts, whose theater program attracted him. Uh, The composer later told Meryl Seacrest, I just wanted to study composition, theory, and harmony without the attendant musicology that comes in graduate school. But I knew I wanted to write for the theater, so I wanted someone who did not disdain theater music. (laughs) So his professor, Barrow, suggested that Sondheim study with Milton Babbitt, whom Sondheim described as, quote, a frustrated show composer with whom he formed a perfect combination. When he met Babbitt, he was working on a musical for Mary Martin based on the myth of Helen of Troy. Sondheim and Babbitt would meet once a week in New York City for four hours, and at the time, Babbitt was teaching at Princeton. At Williams, Sondheim wrote a musical adaptation of Beggar on Horseback, um, as mentioned before, which had three performances. And a member of the Beta Theta Pi fraternity, he graduated magna cum laude in 1950. 
So, so he so he had managed to like kind of befriend these people that were yes. already big in the industry. Yes. And who were willing to take him under their wings. Yes. Even That's as, really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's very he was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so happened that he became friends with James Hammerstein and then Oscar kind of took him under his wing and um Hammerstein. Hammerstein's like lyricism is very evident in Sondheim music mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that a little bit later but um, you can really see like that kind of transition from Hammerstein to Sondheim. Wow. So after you graduated a few painful years of struggle followed um, when Sondheim auditioned songs. He lived in his father's dining room to save money and he spent time in Hollywood writing for the television series Topper. Um, <laughs> he he devoured 1940s and 1950s film and he has called cinema his basic language. His film knowledge got him through the $64,000 question contestant tryout. So he was also Ooh. like a trivia guy. Ah, that's really funny. <laughs> Um, Sondheim dislikes movie musicals favoring classic dramas such as Citizen Kane, The Grapes of Wrath, and A Matter of Life and Death. And so Sondheim musicals are known for being kind of um, realistic in that they depict like the tragedy of everyday life, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like internal struggles that has like a very, they have cinematic qualities to them in terms of um, subject matter. Yeah. A lot of divorce and unhappiness and love lost and all of this stuff, um, which at the time, like in the 60s and 70s, it was not, you know, we were transitioning from like uh, guys and dolls, yeah. you know, like stuff that's very like big musical. Let's put on a show. Or just you know, a bunch of guys and dolls. dolls. <laughs> exactly. So there's it's not as like light surface <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of, you know, stories about love and songs and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm he gets kind of deeper into a more cinematic aspect. Interesting. And that's part of the reason mm-hmm. why he, his musicals were so fi- like successful. Mm-hmm. So by age 22, uh, Sondheim had finished the four shows requested by Hammerstein and Julius and Philip Epstein's front porch in Flatbush, which was unproduced at the time was being shopped around by Lemuel Lem Ayers, who was a producer. Uh, Ayers approached Frank Lesser and another composer who turned him down. Uh, Ayers and Sondheim met as ushers at a wedding, and Ayers commissioned Sondheim for three songs for the show. Uh, Julius Epstein flew in from California and hired Sondheim, who worked with him in California for four or five months. After eight auditions for backers, half of the money needed was raised, and the show, which was retitled Saturday Night, was intended to open during the 1954-55 Broadway season. However... Ayers died of leukemia in his early 40s, and the rights transferred to his widow, Shirley. And because of her inexperience, the show did not continue as planned. Mm. And it opened, it didn't open um, until 2000. Oh, wow. Off Broadway, yeah. So for all intents and purposes, Saturday Night is the first, like, professional musical that Sondheim worked on. Okay. Um, But it was not produced at that point. Okay. So if you, in a trivia question, it's like, what is the first professional musical that Sondheim worked on? It would be Saturday Night. Mm -hmm. Um, Sondheim later said, I don't have any emotional reaction to Saturday Night at all, except fondness. It's not bad stuff for a 23-year-old. There are some things that embarrass me so much in the lyrics, the missed accents, the obvious jokes. But I decided, leave it. It's my baby pictures. You don't touch up a baby picture. You're a baby. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) At a party later, Sondheim met playwright and screenwriter Arthur Lawrence, who had seen one of the auditions of Saturday Night, and they began talking. Uh, Lawrence told him that he was working on a musical version of Romeo and Juliet with Leonard Bernstein, but they needed a lyricist. 
Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who were supposed to write the lyrics, they were famous lyricists, were under contract in Hollywood, so they couldn't work on it. Mm. And he said that although he was not a big fan of Sondheim's music, he said this to his face. He's like, I'm not a big fan of your music, but (laughs) (laughs) he enjoyed the lyrics for Saturday Night and he could audition for Bernstein. So the following day, Sondheim met and played for Bernstein, who said he would let him know. Um, The composer wanted to write music and lyrics. um, And after consulting with Hammerstein, Bernstein told Sondheim, this is, these names are crazy. Oh my gosh. Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein told Sondheim he could write music later. So in 1957, West Side Story opened, which Mm -hmm. was directed by Jerome Robbins and it ran for 732 performances. Um, West Side Story is one of my favorite musicals. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's funny. It's touching. It's great. I love it. Um, Sondheim wrote the lyrics for West Side Story. Leonard Bernstein wrote the music. Okay. Um, Sondheim has expressed dissatisfaction with his lyrics for the musical, saying that they do not always fit the characters and are sometimes too consciously poetic. Initially, Bernstein was also credited as a co-writer of the lyrics. Later, however, Bernstein offered Sondheim solo credit as Sondheim had essentially done all of them. And in fact, uh, the New York Times review of the show never even mentioned the lyrics. So there's (laughs) that. Uh, Sondheim described the division of the royalties, saying that Bernstein received 3% and he received 1%. Bernstein Hmm. suggested evening the percentage at 2% each, but Sondheim refused because he was satisfied just getting the credit. Sondheim later said that he wished someone stuffed a handkerchief in my mouth because it would have been nice to get that extra percentage. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I love this. Um, After West Side Story opened, James Sheevelove, who is a producer, lamented the lack of lowbrow comedy on Broadway and mentioned a possible musical based on Plautus's Roman comedies. Because, you know, when I think lowbrow comedy, I think of Plautus. (laughs) (laughs) So when Sondheim was interested in the idea, he called a friend, Larry Gelbart, to co-write the script. And the show went through a number of drafts and was interrupted briefly by Sondheim's next project. So his next project. In 1959, Sondheim was approached by Lawrence and Robbins for a musical version of Gypsy Rose Lee's memoir after Irving Berlin and Cole Porter turned it down. Okay. Sondheim agreed, but Ethel Merman, who was cast as Mama Rose, Mama Rose, um, had just finished Happy Hunting with an unknown composer, who was Harold Carr, and lyricist, who was Matt Doobie. Although Sondheim wanted to write the music and the lyrics, Merman refused to let another first-time composer write for her and demanded that Jules Stein write the music. Oh, well. Yeah. Sondheim, concerned that writing lyrics again would pigeonhole him as a lyricist, called Hammerstein for advice, his mentor. Um, Hammerstein told him, take the job because writing a vehicle for a star would be a good learning experience altogether. Mm -hmm. So Sondheim eventually agreed and Gypsy opened on May 21st, 1959 and ran for 702 performances. Extra, extra. Hey, look at the headline. Historical news (laughs) is being made. Oh my God. (laughs) I didn't know you were such. Extra, they're drawing a red line around (laughs) the biggest news of the decade. That's what I didn't know you were such. I didn't know you were such a gypsy fan. Oh, that's the only song I know. Oh, okay. Um, my favorite gypsy song is, uh, well, besides um, Mama Rose's Lament mm-hmm. or whatever that song is, I really like You Gotta Have a, um, oh, shoot, what's the name of it? Oh, You Gotta Have a Gimmick. Mm. You Gotta Have a Gimmick. <laughs> so, it's so good. Uh, Gypsy's fantastic. It's too long, but it's great. Um, so Sondheim did the lyrics for Gypsy as well. Mm-hmm. So. In 1960, Sondheim lost his mentor and father figure, Oscar Hammerstein. 
He remembered that shortly before Hammerstein's death, Hammerstein had given him a portrait of himself. Sondheim asked him to inscribe it and said later about the request that it was, quote, weird. It's like asking your father to inscribe something. Reading the inscription, which was, for Stevie, my friend and teacher, choked up the composer who said, that describes Oscar better than anything I could say. When he walked away from the house that evening, Sondheim remembered a sad, sinking feeling that they had said their final goodbye. He never saw his mentor again. Three days later, Hammerstein died of stomach cancer, and Hammerstein's protege eulogized him at his funeral, which is so sad. So, the first musical that Sondheim wrote the music and the lyrics for was A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which opened in 1962 and ran for 964 performances. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the book was based on farces by Plautus, as mentioned before, uh, was written by Pert Shivlov and Larry Gelbart. Uh, Sondheim's score was not well received, although the show won several Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Um, but Sondheim did not receive a nomination. I don't know any songs from that one. Uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. It's, it's like a classic Sondheim. It's very 60s. Um, there's songs like Comedy Tonight, uh, Pretty Little Picture, that dirty old man. It's very funny. It's like a madcap. Like the story of a funny, funny thing happened on the way the forum is like, there's this uh, slave. There are three houses in ancient Rome and there's a slave who's trying to like win his freedom. His name is Pseudolus and Pseudolus is either played by a man or a woman. It's kind of like a gender, like Mm -hmm. you can swap it pretty easily. And Pseudolus ends up being like a really good liar. And so he, manages to get like the guy who like owns him uh he gets him a girlfriend who is one of the concubines of the guy who lives next door and he dresses up like a concubine to like get her and then the old man who lives on the other side is like looking for his children because they were kidnapped when they were kids and he like is gone for most of the show and you know like it's madcap and there's chases and you know disguises and all sorts of things so it's it's kind of like there's a loose story around it um, but it's very funny. And is everyone just wearing togas? Everyone's wearing togas. All right. Um, it's very sixties. Like all the guys are wearing togas and all the women are wearing like the white bikinis basically <laughs> <laughs> and like gold in their hair and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but it's, uh, it's a classic. It's a sixties classic Sondheim. So Sondheim by this time had participated in three straight hits. So you got, you got West Side Story, you got Gypsy, you got Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Um, but his next show, which was 1964's Anyone Can Whistle, was a nine-performance bomb. Um, although the the silver lining for this is it introduced Angela Lansbury to musical theater. Okay. Yeah. Um, Do I Hear a Waltz, which was based on Arthur Lawrence's 1952 play The Time of the Cuckoo, was intended as another Rodgers and Hammerstein musical with Mary Martin in the lead. Um, and a new lyricist was needed, so Sondheim filled in there. Um, although Richard Rogers and Sondheim agreed that the original play did not lend itself to musicalization, they began writing the musical version anyway. Mm-hmm. And the project had many problems. Uh, Rogers' alcoholism among them. Oh, boy. Uh, Sondheim, calling it the one project he regretted, then decided to work only when he could write both music and lyrics. So Do I Hear a Waltz was a difficult project. So difficult, in fact, that he was like, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to, I'm going to be in charge of all of the music and lyrics for this stuff from here on out. So I'm no more group projects, no more group projects. I'm doing this on my own. 
1970, he began a collaboration with director Harold Prince that would result in a body of work that is considered one of the high watermarks of musical theater history. Okay. So these are like his major hits. So I'm going to describe like the background of the musical. I'm going to give you the best known songs. I'm going to give you like a quick, you know, like storyline type Mm -hmm. thing. So. Their first show with Prince as a director was the 1970 concept musical Company. Mm -hmm. So Company is a show about a single man and his married friends. His name's Bob or Bobby, they call him. Uh, Company, with a book by George Firth, lacked a straightforward plot and was instead centered around themes such as marriage and the difficulty of making an emotional connection with another person. So each one of their three acts, each one of the acts begins with Bobby's 35th birthday party. And all of his friends are couples. And so, like, the beginning, he's, like, blowing out his candles or they're singing happy birthday or whatever. And then things kind of, like, break off where each couple is either getting married or getting a divorce or they're having problems or they're falling in love or they're having affairs. And there's songs around all of that. And the through line of that is, like, Bobby wants to find a wife, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, it opened on April 26, 1970 at the Alvin Theater, where it ran for 705 performances after seven previews and won Tony Awards for Best Musical, Best Music, and Best Lyrics. Um, it was revived on Broadway in 1995 and in 2006 and um, is supposed to be revived again in 2020 in a version where the main character is gender swapped. So, so many revivals. Yeah, a lot of revivals. Well, people love Sondheim. So um, the cool thing about Sondheim is that it seems that his characters are universal enough where you can gender swap the main characters or all the characters. And you really don't have to do a lot Mm -hmm. to the story at all. So, you know, in company originally it's Bob, a male like lead, but the gender swap, they just call her Bobby Mm -hmm. and she's the same, basically the same person. So best known songs for company for the musical Luddite. You got the ladies who lunch, the ladies who lunch, um, which is often thought of as Elaine Stritch's song. Like Sondheim ladies are like Elaine Stritch, Bernadette Peters, Patti Lapone. Like these are the ladies Mm -hmm. who were in the original casts of a lot of his stuff and have incredible voices and were extremely good. Um, Being Alive uh, and Getting Married Today. So we're going to talk about a couple of the songs. So. Being Alive has become popular outside of its original musical setting, and although written for a male part, it's frequently performed by women. Uh, The song has been performed in concert, on the stage, or in the studio by Bernadette Peters, Patti Lapone, Barbara Streisand, Margaret Whiting, Leah Salonga, Raul Esperanza, Chris Colfer, Neil Patrick Harris, and Adam Driver, among others. Adam Driver? So Adam Driver sang it in its entirety in Marriage Story. Oh, so like they, he's like he's a director in the movie. I didn't see it because I yeah. don't care. But um, in the movie, he's a he's a musical theater director, oh, and okay. he's he's putting on company, and he's like singing it. He sings it in the whole song in the movie, <laughs> which seems excessive, but whatever. Um, Being Alive originally replaced the song Happily Ever After, which was cut from Company because it was considered too dark to serve as a closing number. Oof. So according to cultural critic Jeremy McCarter, Sondheim has never been happy with being alive as the finale for Company, calling it a cop-out. So getting married today um, is considered uh, the most difficult musical song with the fastest verse in history. With six, <laughs> So it's 68 words sung in a total of 11 seconds. That's too many. So that's the type of song is called a patter song. Uh-huh. 
Um, and it's almost like rap, not really. Um, it's essentially like the the character is her name is Amy, and she's finally marrying her her longtime boyfriend, but she's like freaking out. And so the whole the whole thing is that she's like basically standing in her wedding dress, and she's like. I'm not feeling well. I can't do this. You can't make me like, this is not ridiculous. I'm not getting married today. And she sings so fast. (laughs) Wow. It's it's out of control. And Sondheim is already considered to be one of the harder composers to sing. He's Mm -hmm. very, his music is very difficult to sing. Um, Partially because um, he has a lot of challenging rhythms. He uses a lot of polyphony. So a lot of different songs, different sounds, um, a lot of vocal leaps. So okay. you're going from like really low to really high or vice versa mm-hmm. in the same, you know, maybe the same bar. Um, and uh, he has a, a literary quality to his lyrics. So already they're hard to pronounce words that you have to sing very, very fast. <laughs> Great. And the chords sometimes don't match the melody. Mm-hmm. So you're singing something with the music is not helping you out. So you have to keep all of this stuff in your mind at the same time and also maintain rhythm when you are singing 68 words in the course of 11 seconds. That's insane. So originally Getting Married Today was the fastest verse in history until Guns and Ships from Ah, Hamilton. From Hamilton. I memorized that one. Yes. A lot of people said that in the... I was looking up Getting Married Today because I was like, I don't think I've ever heard this song. And I found... um, uh, a version on YouTube and all the a lot of the YouTube comments where people were like, how have I memorized guns and ships and I'm able to sing it and I cannot get this song. <laughs> so Hamilton eclipsed the the rate with 19 words in three seconds. So that's that's how fast guns and ships is. Um, The ladies who lunch is is like it's a great song. It's just like, it's an older woman, like looking cynically on at rich ladies who are like tossing their money around and wasting their lives kind of thing. I watched a version um, of Sondheim at 80 because there's always a concert whenever it's his birthday and it's like famous (laughs) people sing his famous songs Mm -hmm. to him. Um, But Patti Lapone sang Elaine Stritch's song, ladies who lunch in front of Elaine Stritch on stage and killed it so dead that, Elaine Stritch jumped up and like gave her a big hug and was like, oh my God, that was amazing. So, I mean, Patty Lapone is otherworldly to begin with. So that's my thought. Um, also, Company was parodied in the Documentary Now uh, episode called... For, for co- co-op. For co-op. And um, the one-to-one, like it's almost a one-to-one. Like it's it's exactly like it's supposed to parody the documentary of... Um, when they made the cast recording mm-hmm. of Company in the 70s. And the, it was like a 14-hour like marathon recording, and they just kept the camera rolling at them like having going through all of this stuff. But um, Getting Married Today is parodied in co-op by the song A Little Cocaine Tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is amazing. Like, honestly, if you've never seen Documentary Now, you've got to watch Documentary Now. If nothing else, if you're a musical theater fan, definitely watch co-op um it's hysterical so anyway next on the Sondheim list is Follies which was in 1971 Mm -hmm. um with a book by James Goldman it opened on April 4th 1971 at the Winter Garden Theater and ran for 522 performances after 12 previews um the plot centers on a reunion in a crumbling Broadway theater scheduled for demolition of performances in Weissman's Follies 
a musical review based on the Ziegfeld Follies, which Mm -hmm. played in that theater between world wars. Um, The production, one of the most lavish of its time, also featured choreography and co-direction by Michael Bennett, who went on to create a chorus line, which was in 1975. Um, The show enjoyed two revivals on Broadway in 2001 and 2011. So Follies is basically like all of these older women and Sondheim writes for older women all the time and just kills it dead. Um, So it's these older women who were formerly Follies and they're like getting back together for one last show, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like, there's a love square, I guess, quadrangle. (laughs) Um, Where like two of the Follies girls like married the wrong guys, like the opposite guys. And they're like regretting it and they don't have their beauty anymore and they don't have they they feel like they're not useful to the world and then um part of it is uh there's like younger versions of themselves that are like ghosts um that perform with them or perform in tandem with them or like it's kind of a beautiful like concept where it's like the ghosts of their past selves are kind of like floating around so it's cool Um, The best known songs from Follies is I'm Still Here, which is considered the song for the older actress. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, Elaine Stritch is known for singing it, and she has said that no actress under 60 has a right to sing it properly. (laughs) Um, Because it's all about, like, it's uh, this character, this older lady character who um, is like, I've been through it all. Um, You can't stop me. I'm still here. You're like, I've stuck my nails into this world and I'm going to get everything I can out of it kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's a very like, it's very bold and well, it's like, it's a beautiful song and she's like strong and it's great. So the other song is losing my mind, which is kind of in terms of like the attitude of it is kind of the opposite of I'm still here. <laughs> um, best sung according to some by Bernadette Peters. Uh, and uh, those are, I think those are like the two okay. main songs of that. Yeah. Um, so then next was what was called A Little Night Music, which was 1973. So these guys are just like bang, 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 musicals one right after another. So A Little Night Music had a more traditional plot based around Igmar Bergman's Smiles of a Summer Night and a score primarily in Walt's time. Um, and it was one of the composer's greatest commercial successes. So Time Magazine called it Sondheim's most brilliant accomplishment to date. The song that you know from A Little Night Music is Send in the Clowns. Uh, Isn't it rich? Yeah, isn't it rich? Uh, Send in the Clowns was a hit like outside of the musical. It was a hit for Judy Collins. Mm -hmm. It became Sondheim's most well-known song. It just became a hit like in pop music. Um, The show opened on Broadway at the Schubert Theater on February 25th, 1973 and ran for 601 performances and 12 previews. It was revived on Broadway in 2009. Um, the show is set in Sweden in 1900. It's like there's relationships and betrayals again. Um, and most notably that you should know about um, A Little Night Music is uh, a quintet of people act as a Greek chorus during the show. Okay. And they have like this beautiful, like Sondheim write this in, wrote this incredible like five-part harmonious like quality to all of the songs. So it's a little bit more, I would say, like his most traditional quote-unquote traditional Mm -hmm. um but it still has like you know there's relationships and betrayals and older ladies who are like sad about their lives and that kind of thing very Sondheim so the next this next one I'm like huh never heard of it it's called Pacific Overtures 
So Pacific Overtures was 1976 with a book by John Weidman. It was the most non-traditional of the Sondheim Prince collaborations. So the show explored the westernization of Japan and was originally presented in a kabuki style. Hmm. So the show closed after a run of 193 performances and was revived on Broadway in 2004. Actually, George Takei was in it. Um, The show is set in Japan beginning in 1853 and follows the difficult westernization of Japan told from the point of view of the Japanese. In particular, the story focuses on the lives of two friends caught in the change. And the original Broadway production of Pacific Overtures in 1976 was obviously, as I mentioned before, staged in a kabuki style with men playing women's parts and set changes made in full view of the audience by black clad stagehands. Hmm. Um, It opened to mixed reviews and closed after six months, despite being nominated for 10 Tony Awards. Um, So given its unusual casting and production demands, Pacific Overtures remains one of Stephen Sondheim's least performed musicals. So you're not going to go to the local high school and see them putting on Pacific Overtures. Um, The show is occasionally staged by opera companies because it has a very like opera quality. Mm -hmm. Um, The cast requires an abundance of gifted male Asian actors who must play both male and female parts. Women join the ensemble for only half of the last song during the finale. All right. Yeah, which I'm not, I could not figure out like exactly why. I think <laughs> it was supposed to be like, and we are now Japan today kind of thing. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, 20 women actors join the cast and sing the remaining 142nd of the show. <laughs> so this creates expensive and challenging casting and thus most regional and community theaters, universities and schools aren't able to produce it. <laughs> It's also, not for nothing, one of his most musically ambitious. So the beginning of the musical has a very Japanese, like, polyphonic, like, quality to Mm -hmm. it. It has a very Japanese sound. And then as the musical, like, moves forward in time, as Japan becomes, quote unquote, westernized, he adds more and more, like, American or Western style music to it. Interesting. Yeah. So by the end, by the finale, the song is entirely like classic Western musical theater song. Okay. So it's very hard to sing because it's, you know, you're moving through different styles Mm -hmm. and different eras of music. And also it's, I mean, the thing that's cool is that, I mean, at least the whole cast is Asian, you know, (laughs) like at least it's not like it's just a bunch of white guys, you know, pretending to be Asian actors. Like, Specifically, Sondheim was like, no, I want this entirely to be a Japanese cast, yeah. So, which is cool. But again, it's not performed a lot because it is so incredibly difficult to do. Wow. All right. This one you have definitely heard of. I really like it because I'm a ghoul. Uh, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, yes. opened in 1979. It is Sondheim's most operatic score and libretto. Uh, which with Pacific Overtures and A Little Night Music has been produced in opera houses. So Sweeney Todd is an opera for all intents Mm -hmm. and purposes. So Sweeney Todd, if you don't know, explores an unlikely topic, which is murderous revenge and cannibalism. Uh, The book by Hugh Wheeler is based on Christopher Bond's 1973 stage version of the Victorian original. Uh, The show has since been revived on Broadway twice in 1989 and 2005 and has been performed in musical theaters and opera houses alike. It ran off Broadway at the Barrow Street Theater until August 26th, 2018. It was also, as you might know, made into a 2007 movie by Tim Burton starring who else? Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter. John Depp. Yep. Good old John Depp. Almost no one in that movie could sing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Pretty Women is my favorite song. Uh, it's the in the movie. It's sung by Johnny Depp and Alan Rickman. Neither one of who can do it any justice, but it's a great song. 
Um, the Ballad of Sweeney Todd is a crowd favorite. It's the song that opens the musical. Mm-hmm. It's the song that ends the musical. It's kind of like runs through as a reprise. Um, Angela Lansbury originated the role of Mrs. Lovett, the pie maker mm-hmm. on Broadway. Although Patti Lapone played her in a 2005 second Broadway revival. Uh, and Donna Lynn Chaplin was in that one too. Oh, hey. She was Great. the gender swapped Pirelli, who was the rival barber, um, who was Italian, but not really Italian. Um, okay, next is Merrily We Roll Along from 1981 with a book by George Firth is one of Sondheim's more traditional scores. Um, we'll talk about Merrily We Roll Along and how bad it was. But according to Sondheim's music director, Paul uh, Geminani, part of Steve's ability is this extraordinary versatility, which is true. Like uh, every musical mm-hmm. seems different. I mean, it, it has like a through line where you can idea Sondheim musical, no problem. But the the variation of like storyline and set and you yeah. know, everything is very different. The show was not the success their previous collaborations had been. So after a chaotic series of preview performances, the show opened to widely negative reviews and closed after a run of less than two weeks. Wow. So, however, due to the high quality of Sondheim's score, however, the show has been reportedly revised and produced in the ensuing years. Martin Godfrey, a biographer, wrote, Sondheim has set out to write traditional songs, but despite that, there's nothing ordinary about the music. Sondheim later said, did I feel betrayed? I'm not sure I would put it like that. What did surprise me was the feeling around the Broadway community, if you can call it that, though I guess I will, for lack of a better word, that they wanted Hale and me to fail. So, Merrily We Roll Along is, it was ambitious in that it was the cast was almost entirely teenagers. Okay. And and the reason why was because it was a story that was supposed to go backwards in time. Hmm. So it's this story about this group of friends who at the beginning of the musical, they're all in their middle age. They're, they've had marriages and divorces and, um, you know, failures in business and Mm -hmm. failures in careers and life and all that stuff. And then as the musical goes along, they get younger and younger. So it's, going backwards in time. Okay. And so the the finale, the last scene of the musical is them graduating from high school. Okay. And having like this, you know, these stars in their eyes and they're like, "We're I'm going to be so successful. I'm going to be a musical producer." Like that kind of thing. Um it didn't go great. I partially, you know, and no one really knows why like they don't know if it was because of the previews, they don't know if it was Sondheim, they don't know if it was like because the cast was so young, yeah. Um, there were a lot of like changes that were made that didn't make any sense that Sondheim didn't love. So we'll talk about that in a second. But the major songs are "Not a Day Goes By," "Good Thing Going," "Old Friends," and "Our Time," and those have all been recorded by various artists outside of the musical, uh, including Carly Simon, Rosemary Clooney, Frank Sinatra, Petula Clark, Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peters, of course. Betty Buckley, Liza Minnelli, Barbara Cook, Patty Lapone, Barry Manilow, Audra McDonald, Michael Crawford, and Lena Horne, wow. among others. And they are often sung on the cabaret circuit. Um, original cast member Lonnie Price later directed a documentary titled Best Worst Thing That Could Have Ever Happened, describing the thrilling, wrenching experience of the original production. Hmm. So I, I watched the, mu- the documentary. It's great. You don't have to know anything about Sondheim to watch it. It's just... It's a great story documentary in that you're like, you can see all these people who are super excited, like, oh my God, I got cast in a Sondheim musical and I'm only 18. Um, Jason Alexander, this was his first foray into musical theater. Like this was his first big break. Yeah. And he's interviewed in the musical and then things start to go wrong and 
it's it's like a great story. And also it's just so musical theater. And that at the end when they're all like getting back together, like the original cast is getting back together, all these middle-aged people, and they all come back to the theater where they were doing the previews. And they're like, hey, oh my God, hey. And there's like musical pl- music playing in the background. And then somebody gets up to the piano and they're like, hey, remember this little piece? Tink-a-ling-a-ding-a-ding-ding-ding. And they're all like, and we're singing around this piano. <laughs> like it's, it is the cheesiest. <laughs> it's, it's actually, I had to watch it through my fingers. And I think this is why the earnestness of musical theater is what like, is like a, I don't know, like it's endearing, but also so embarrassing. <laughs> What's the documentary called? It's called Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. (laughs) And it's great. I would, I highly recommend it. I think last time I watched it, I think it was on Netflix or Amazon. It's it's on like a a streaming service Mm -hmm. that is available, but it's great. You should definitely watch it. So unfortunately, this was Sondheim's first failure in a very long time. So it Mm -hmm. greatly affected him. And he said he was ready to quit theater and do movies or create video games or write (laughs) mysteries. He didn't care. He said, I wanted to find something to satisfy myself that does not involve Broadway and dealing with all those people who hate me and hate Hal. Oh. Yeah. Um, so Sondheim and Prince's collaboration was suspended. So they stopped collaborating after Merrily. Oh. And they did not collaborate again until 2003, which was a production of Bounce, which unfortunately was another failure. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, um, However, Sondheim decided that there are better places to start a show and found a new collaborator in James Lapine after he saw Lapine's 12 Dreams off-Broadway in 1981. And he said, I was discouraged and I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't discovered 12 Dreams at the public theater. Lapine has a taste for the avant-garde and for visually oriented theater in particular. So their first collaboration was Sunday in the Park with George in 1984 Mm -hmm. with Sondheim's music evoking George Surratt's pointillism. So... The musical is basically like a very, you know, fictionalized version of Georges Seurat and his life. Mm -hmm. And the whole, uh, like the set and everything is based around his, um, uh, the Lagrange shot Mm -hmm. piece, the pointillism, the famous pointillism piece. So, you know, it's George Seurat and he's, and the cool thing is, is that this is very James Lapine where in the musical, like, George is painting in La Grand Jatte and he's like freeze and people are freezing and they freeze in the positions that they are in the painting mm-hmm. or freeze in the positions that they are in like other Seurat p- paintings. So it's this great like, I don't know, it's a visual like feast of seeing yeah. these this like setup, which was unique at the time. So of course, like George Seurat has a mistress named Dot, which is like, okay. Oh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> I know I, I thought it was kind of funny um, and like you know he is dedicated to his painting and she just wants him to like be a father to their child and so she leaves him blah 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 and then the second the second half of the musical is all about his grandson also named George who is also an artist and his you know fiance and you know it's kind of like the parallels of their lives and that kind of thing mm-hmm. The real Georges Seurat did not have a grandson. He had a wife and he had children, but they died in infancy. So he Mm. never had a grandson. So, but it's great. People loved it. 
Sondheim and Lapine won the 1985 yeah. Pulitzer Prize for Drama for the play. Um, it was revived on Broadway in 2008 and again in a limited run in 2017. Yeah, that's a Mandy Patinkin musical. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, it is a Mandy Patinkin musical. Uh, famous songs from the show are Sunday in the Park with George, which was the beginning song. It's the opening song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Finishing the Hat. So more yeah. on f- that song later, but Finishing okay. the Hat. Okay. So <clears throat> next is the musical I hate more than almost anything in the whole wide world. They collaborated next on Into the Woods. I was going to this is going to be my guess. Yeah. I hate Into the Woods. I'll tell you why. You'll tell us why. I had oh, no I'll- I had no doubt that you would tell us why you don't like it. <laughs> so If you don't know, Into the Woods is a musical based on several Brothers Grimm fairy tales. There's like, no one really has a name. There's the baker and the baker's wife. And there's Jack um, and the giant. And there's, you know, the uh, Cinderella and the princes, you know, the handsome princes and all this stuff. And they all like meet in the woods and various things happen and whatever. Um, So although Sondheim has been called the first composer to bring rap music to Broadway. Ooh, okay. With... Apparently, the witch in the opening number of Into the Woods has that kind of like patter quality to Mm. that part of the song. Um, He personally attributes the first rap in theater to Meredith Wilson's Rock Island from The Music Man. (laughs) So he does not, he will not accept that mantle of bringing rap music to Broadway. Um, But anyway, the show was revived on Broadway in 2002. Um, Famous songs are Into the Woods and it's many, many, many reprises. And also, <laughs> No One Is Alone, which is the final song. So the reason why I hate Into the Woods. And you know what? I get it. A lot of people love it. This is just my opinion. You don't have to take it. It's totally fine. Don't get up in my menchies. Like, <laughs> people love Into the Woods, and I I understand that. However, Into the Woods is the longest fucking musical that has ever been made. I know it's only two and a half hours. I know it's only two acts. It feels like 16 acts, and it feels like, you know, 12 hours. It's just... the. The characters that survive through both acts are not interesting. The one character that you like ID with dies at the beginning of the second act. The baker's wife just kicks it. So many people get murdered. And then and then you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, it's sad, but also you don't care that much because it's, you've been sitting in your seat for three and a half hours already. Like, it's just <laughs> it's just not it's just not interesting musical okay. to me. Um, so there's that. But anyway, Into the Woods and No One Is Alone. Those are the songs that you should know about Into the Woods. I'm sure people, Into the Wood fanatics will maybe disagree with Woodies, me. Woodies, they call them. Yeah, Woodies. Those old Woodies. <laughs> yeah, you know, Woodies. Okay. Uh, Sondheim and Lapine's last work together was the Rhapsodic Passion, which was 1994. Uh, adapted from Ettore Scola's uh, Italian film Passione d'Amore. Uh, with a run of 280 performances, Passion was the shortest running show to win a Tony Award for Best Musical. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's set in uh, Risorgimento era Italy, which is the 19th century unification of Italy as a country. The plot concerns a young soldier whose name is Giorgio and the changes in him brought about by the obsessive love of Fosca, his colonel's homely ailing cousin. So passion was generally admired by critics for its ambition, but savaged by theater goers when it first opened. In particular, uh, audiences were repelled by the characterization of Fosca. So just as a background, 
Giorgio is this handsome soldier. He falls in love with this woman. They're together. But turns out she's married and he keeps waiting for her to divorce her husband. In the meantime, his colonel is like, hey, I brought my cousin. She's the worst, isn't she? Because she's so sick and she keeps like fainting or like going into hysterics and she's ugly. And so Giorgio like takes pity on her and he brings her books and stuff and she becomes like obsessed with him. And so for like years, she writes him letters and he tries and sees her every so often. And then at the end, he breaks up with the previous woman and is finally like, oh, you know who the only person who ever truly loved me? Fosca. And then Fosca's like, oh, you love me too? And he's like, I love you. And then she dies. So it's annoying. So anyway, during previews, people would applaud whenever Fosca had a meltdown. And in one performance, someone from the balcony yelled, die, Fosca, die! Oh, boy. Because her her character was so obnoxious. So people didn't love it. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So then, I'm almost done, I promise. Then you've got Assassins. Yes. Which you may have heard of. So Assassins opened off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons on December 18th, 1990 with a book by John Weidman. Um, The show explored in review form a group of historical figures who tried either with success or without to assassinate the president of the United States. (laughs) It is a deeply weird musical. Mm -hmm. Like it is very like, you know, you've got squeaky from and you've got uh, you've got John Wilkes Booth and they're Mm -hmm. they all like interact with each other and. They're like, oh, this is why I want to kill this guy. And like, oh, this is why I want to, you know, I want this. And like they, the, everybody has a gun. Like they're always like shooting off guns. And at the end of the musical, they all point their guns into the audience and just are like, bang, 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 and shoot their guns into the audience. And I feel like there's so many like comedy and musical people that when they're asked what their favorite musical is, Assassins is their answer. And yeah. it's, it's a very like specific type of person. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. If you like Assassins, if Assassins is your favorite musical, I've got your number. I I feel like <laughs> Rachel Bloom has said that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Assassins is is deeply strange. And I can see like it's it is genius. Like it's mm-hmm. who does this? But apparently it it closed in nineteen ninety one after only seventy three performances, but it eventually received a Broadway production in two thousand four. So 2004 was like the first time it was on Broadway specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, it opened off Broadway initially. So um, so during the late 1990s, Sondheim and Weidman reunited for Wise Guys, which is a musical comedy following brothers Addison and Wilson Meisner. Uh, a Broadway production starring Nathan Lane and Victor Garber, directed by Sam Mendes and planned for the spring of 2000, was delayed. It was renamed Bounce in 2003, and it was produced at the Goodman Theater in Chicago and the Kennedy Center in Washington in a production directed by Harold Prince. His first collaboration with Sondheim since 1981, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Although after poor reviews, Bounce never reached Broadway, and a revised version opened off-Broadway as Roadshow at the Public Theater on October 28, 2008. Directed by John Doyle, it closed on December 28, 2008. So again, as I mentioned before, it tells the story of Addison Meisner and his brother Wilson Meisner's adventures across America from the beginning of the 20th century during the Klondike Gold Rush to the Florida real estate boom of the 1920s. It so it so if you <laughs> that is his last musical. Okay. So if it has three names: Wise Guys, Bounce, and Roadshow. I gotta tell you when you when you said the musical Wise Guys, I'm, I'm absolutely picturing like. A madcap oh, yeah. mafia romp. Yep. No, it's about 
the gold rush. We're just a bunch of wise guys. <laughs> yeah, every song starts like that. <laughs> <laughs> so give me some of Gabagool. <laughs> give me some of that mozzarella. <laughs> Man, we got a musical right there. Done. Just, Move over, Sondheim. Just naming food. Yeah. It's just a f- <laughs> Move over, Sondheim. It's time for Novakovic and Teglaferro. That's what's up. The second coming of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Okay. So, asked about writing new work, Sondheim replied in 2006, no, it's age. It's a diminution of energy and the worry that there are no new ideas. It's also an increasing lack of confidence. I'm not the only one. I've checked with other people. People expect more of you and you're aware of it and you shouldn't be. In December 2007, he said that in addition to continuing work on Bounce, he was, quote, nibbling at a couple of things with John Weidman and James Lapine. After he was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein II, uh, Sondheim has returned the favor, saying that he loves passing on what Oscar passed on to me. So Sondheim mentored a fledgling Jonathan Larson, attending Larson's workshop for his Superbia, which was a musical version of 1984. In Larson's musical Tick, Tick, Boom, the phone message is played in which Sondheim apologizes for leaving early, says he wants to meet him, and is impressed with his work. (laughs) Um, after Larson's death, Sondheim called him one of the few composers attempting to blend contemporary pop music with theater music, which doesn't work very well. He was on his way to finding a real synthesis. A good deal of pop music has interesting lyrics, but they are not theater lyrics. A musical theater composer must have a sense of what is theatrical, of how you use music to tell a story as opposed to writing a song. Mm-hmm. Jonathan understood that instinctively. Around 2008, Sondheim approached Lin-Manuel Miranda to work with him translating West Side Story lyrics into Spanish for an upcoming Broadway revival. Uh Miranda then approached Sondheim with his new project, Hamilton, then called the Hamilton Mixtape, which Sondheim gave notes on. Sondheim was originally wary of the project, saying he was worried that an evening of rap might get monotonous. However, Sondheim believed Miranda's attention to and respect for good rhyming made it work. Great. A um, couple other things just about Sondheim himself. Uh, he is an avid fan of games. Uh, in 1968 and 1969, Sondheim published a series of cryptic crossword puzzles in New York Magazine. And in 1987, Time Magazine called his love of puzzle making legendary in theater circles. Uh, also, his compositions have included a number of film scores, including a set of songs written for Warren Beatty's uh, 1990 film version of Dick Tracy, which is a terrible movie we watched it the other day. It's so oh, bad. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so, oh, it's so bad. It's just such a bad movie. But uh, one of Sondheim's songs for the film, which was called Sooner or Later, I Always Get My Man, which is sung in the movie by Madonna, mm-hmm. won him an Academy Award. Um, Madonna can't sing. I mean, we know this. Uh, so sooner or later, I always get my man is not is not a difficult Sondheim song to sing. I mean, I could sing this song. It's very like straightforward, but he won an Academy Award. Um, his 2010 Finishing the Hat, which is a book, mm-hmm. annotates his lyrics from productions dating from 1954 to 1981. In addition to published and unpublished lyrics from West Side Story, Follies and Company, the tome finds Sondheim discussing his relationship with Oscar Hammerstein and his collaborations with composers, actors and directors throughout his lengthy career. The book, which is first of a two-part series, is named after the song from Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, Finishing the Hat was published in October 2010, and the book was 11th on the New York Times hardcover nonfiction list for November 5th of that year. Its sequel, which is called Look, I Made a Hat. Stop uh, it. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's called Look, I Made a Hat, Collected Lyrics, 1981 to 2011. Uh, <laughs> this is the total title. Ready? Look, I Made a Hat. 
collected lyrics, 1981 to 2011, with attendant comments, amplifications, dogmas, harangues, digressions, anecdotes, and miscellany. Uh, that was published on November 22nd, 2011, and the book, continuing from Sunday in the Pork with George, where Finishing the Hat ended, includes sections on Sondheim's work in film and television. Part of the reason why people love Sondheim is so much is because he's so accessible. Mm-hmm. Like, he is perfectly happy to share with you every step of the process that of which he made, like, every musical. Okay. So on all of his birthdays, people are always, like, getting together and... Like, we're going to do, we're going to put on a show. We're going to, like, seat Steve in the front center, and we're going to sing to him all of his songs, and he's going to clap, or he's going to roll his eyes, or whatever. And it's great, and everyone loves it, because Sondheim is a classic. Um, His 90th was supposed to happen this past spring, but because Mm. of the pandemic, they did it all on Zoom. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, Patti Lapone and Meryl Streep, and I think it was Christine Baranski, Mm. did... um, ladies who lunch together nice and that became like a meme because i think at one point meryl streep like finished her glass of wine like in one fell swoop but um that is my quick and dirty on steven sondheim if you had quick and dirty on your misinfo pod <laughs> bingo card congratulations I know, I I gotta you stop. use quick and dirty for things that aren't quick or dirty no no you're right <laughs> you are absolutely right i just say it just to keep to say words you know sometimes you just say words the podcast is words it's words and sounds words and sounds and everything okay so i think the name of the episode should be look i made a hat Ooh, i love that okay it is gonna be the name of the episode. look i made a hat okay so my quiz today is called it's my penance quiz today is called into the woods a quiz on things you'd find in the woods. Question number one. First, a bear in the woods question. Don't worry, it's not about poop. On how many continents will you find bears? Question number two. While walking through the woods, you might encounter what's called a fairy ring. This is the naturally occurring formation of what growing thing, which forms the outline of a perfect circle. Question number three. Apparently among the hardest English words to pronounce are words like air, specific, brewery, and this word, which is so difficult, according to a linguist, because the word starts with a three-consonant cluster, followed by a rhotic schwa, and ending with a syllabic ul. What is this hard-to-pronounce word? Question number four. Ferns are some of the oldest plants in the world, first appearing in the fossil record about 360 million years ago in the late Devonian period. But many of the current families and species did not appear until roughly 145 million years ago in the early Cretaceous. Maybe because they're so ancient, ferns reproduce with neither seeds nor flowers, instead distributing their genetic material via what? Question number five. These ubiquitous forest animals are widely distributed with 60 different species seen worldwide and are present on every continent except for Antarctica. Can you give me the common name for this hoofed ruminant cervid? Question number six. You might want to go out into the woods to find this kind of soil for your garden. It's defined as a soil comprised mostly of sand, silt, and clay along with humus or decomposed plant material, which altogether is great for plants. What is the name of this soil, which is not the capital of Togo? Question number seven. A tree planted in 2002 in Los Angeles's Griffith Park to commemorate the late great guitarist George Harrison was overrun and destroyed a mere seven months later. 
what appropriate killers destroyed George's tree? Question number eight. True or false, our cars today run on the remains of dinosaurs. That's why we call them fossil fuels. Question number nine. The Muscogee, or Creek, are a related group of indigenous peoples inhabiting what now comprises southern Tennessee, all of Alabama, western Georgia, and parts of northern Florida. A cultural area known as what, appropriate for this quiz, region. And finally, question number 10. While walking through the woods, you may come across a dead body. The stiffening of limbs that occurs three to four hours after death is called rigor mortis, but the settling of blood in the body, causing purple or red discoloration of the skin, is called what? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual where everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I ever heard of, which is followed by a honeymoon. We're suddenly here, realize you saddled with a nut to want to kill me, which you should. Thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married. Go have lunch, because I'm not getting married. You've been grand, but I'm not getting married. Don't just stand there, I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul that I'm not getting married today. Just a straightforward woods question. Yeah. Just a oh, bunch yeah. of woods questions. Okay. Here we go. Into the woods. Quiz okay. of things you find in the woods. Number one. First, a bear in the woods question. Don't worry. It's not about poop. On how many continents will you find bears? I'm going to say six. Incorrect. Ooh. They are found on four. Ooh. Eur- Europe, South America, North America, and Asia. Okay. Um, there are eight species of bears distributed around the world. These include the sun bear, sloth bear, spectacled bear, American black bear, Asian black bear, brown bear, polar bear, and giant panda. A guess- grizzly bear is a subspecies of the brown bear. I guess Australia has enough nightmare animals running around. (laughs) That they don't need a bear to. Yeah, exactly. Question number two. So they're really northern hemisphere. Yeah, they're very northern hemisphere animals. interesting. Yep. Question number two. While walking through the woods, you might encounter what's called a fairy ring. This is the naturally occurring formation of what growing thing which forms the outline of a perfect circle. Is it mushrooms? It is mushrooms. Um, this thing, this little top, this little tidbit of info blew my mind. Portobello mushrooms, button mushrooms, and white mushrooms are all the same mushroom at different levels of maturity. Huh. So it's kind of like, you know, a green bell pepper, a red bell pepper, yeah. an orange bell pepper. You know, they're, those are all like the same thing, just at different levels of ripening. Hmm. Um, In 1979, a scholar in Semitic languages from the University of Manchester published a book claiming that the word Jesus in the Bible has been misinterpreted and that is really code for a certain species of hallucinogenic mushroom. I thought that was interesting. I think Andres mentioned that in one of our episodes. (laughs) Okay. Question number three. Apparently among the hardest English words to pronounce by non-native speakers are words like air, specific, brewery and this word which is so difficult according to a linguist because of the the word starts with a three consonant cluster followed by a rhotic schwa and ending with a syllabic ol what is this hard to pronounce word 
trying to think of what would end in oh. Um, think about the theme of this quiz. Hmm. I got nothing. Okay. The word is squirrel. (laughs) So, turns out many languages have no combined sk sound. Okay. Uh, Many don't combined kw, qua. Mm -hmm. Um, Even similar languages like French, Spanish, and German, where qu means a different sound. Okay. Um, Some languages don't distinguish W from the uh sound, as in book. Uh, And some languages even lack S, like Hawaiian, for example. Um, So that whole combination of squirrel, where you do not pronounce the E in squirrel, is is almost impossible for non-native speakers. Um, The other tricky English words are derby, phenomenon, regularly, February, edited and the worst by a poll on reddit is worcestershire (laughs) which yeah of course makes perfect sense yeah interesting question number four ferns are some of the oldest plants in the world first appearing in the fossil record about 360 million years ago in the late devonian period maybe because they're so ancient ferns reproduce with neither seeds nor flowers instead distributing their genetic material via what uh, those are spores. Those are spores. Uh, they are produced in specialized organs, the spore cases or sporangia. Uh, spores usually look like small dots on the underside of the fronds, and fern plants can drop millions of spores onto the ground, but only the few that find ideal conditions will grow. Okay. Question number five. These ubiquitous forest animals are widely distributed with 60 different species seen worldwide and are present on every continent except for Antarctica. Can you give me the common name for this hoofed ruminant cervid? Are these deer? Yes, it's deer. Uh, Species of deer include moose, caribou, elk, and wapiti. Question number six. You might want to go out into the woods to find this kind of soil for your garden. It's defined as a soil comprised mostly of sand, silt, and clay, along with humus, or decomposed plant material, which altogether is great for plants. What is the name of the soil, which is not the capital of Togo? It's loam. It is loam. (laughs) Um, There are different types of loam soils. Sandy loam, silty loam, clay loam, sandy clay loam, silty clay loam, and loam. If you look at, if you say it enough, it doesn't mean anything anymore. If you say it enough, it sounds like a Sondheim song. Um, (laughs) Loam soils generally contain more nutrients, moisture, and humus than sandy soils, have better drainage and infiltration of water and air than silt and clay-rich soils, and are easier to till than clay soils. So loam is the Goldilocks of soil. (laughs) Uh, Question number seven. A tree planted in 2002 in Los Angeles' Griffith Park to commemorate the late great guitarist George Harrison was overrun and destroyed a mere seven months later. What appropriate killers destroyed George's tree? Beetles. It is beetles. (laughs) That's funny. That was funny. (laughs) So it's bark beetles and ladybugs, to be exact, like destroyed it. So the original tree was a Canary Island pine, which was apparently too delicious to resist uh, and was later replaced by a yew tree in 2015 in the same spot. You mean it wasn't Norwegian wood? I know. You'd think that that would be appropriate, but who knows? You know. Anyway, question number eight. True or false, our cars today run on the remains of dinosaurs. That's why we call them fossil fuels. I'll say true. It is false. So... (laughs) Dinosaurs specifically did not create fossil fuels. Rather, it was microscopic organisms called diatoms. 
Uh, fossil fuel, a non-renewable resource formed from these tiny creatures dying in large numbers. And pressure and temperature on the sedimentary rock, which covered their remains, converted the remaining carbon from their bodies into fuel. Question number nine. The Muscogee, or Creek, are a related group of indigenous peoples inhabiting what now comprises southern Tennessee, all of Alabama, western Georgia, and parts of northern Florida, a cultural area known as what, appropriate for this quiz, region? I have no idea. Okay, they're called the Woodlands, or the Southeastern Woodlands. So the boundaries of the region are defined more by shared cultural traits than by geographic distinctions, because the cultures gradually... Uh, instead of abruptly shift into plains, prairie, or northeastern woodlands cultures, scholars do not always agree on the exact limits of the southeastern woodland cultural region. As with most indigenous peoples, it's, you know, it, we they don't have boundaries. It's right. not like a European thing. Sure. So. <laughs> and finally, question number 10. While walking through the woods, you might ac- come across a dead body. The stiffening of limbs that occurs three to four hours after death is called rigor mortis, but the settling of blood in the body causing purple or red discoloration of the skin is called what? I mean, it has gone out of my head. Mm. Um, I I used to watch a lot of CSI. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, bring back your CSI. A lot of investigation discovery shows, but not so much in recent years. Um, I can't. Okay. Got nothing. Yeah. It's called liver mortis. (sighs) Yeah. L-I-V-O-R. Yep. Mm L-I-V-O-R. This can set within 20 minutes and becomes fixed after 10 to 12 hours. So that was my quiz on things that you would find in the woods that have nothing to do with Stephen Sondheim. (laughs) Great Um, job. Thank you. Thanks for sticking with us, everybody. I know this was kind of a long one. A lot of things. A lot of things to talk about. Um, uh, Yeah. Please rate, review, and subscribe. You know? Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. <laughs> tell a friend. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just close this here. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. <laughs> we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Yeah. <laughs>